Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Anyone that knows me or knows my platform, they understand how passionate I am about metabolic health. I recently reconnected with Megan Ramos. I recorded with her on podcast 116 and 188, and we dove into her new book talking about women and fasting and some of the fascinating statistics that are contained in her book center around how 52% of Americans have at least one chronic illness and 70% are overweight or obese. And the average person will have tried 126 diets in their lifetime. Megan is a Canadian clinical educator and expert on therapeutic fasting and low-carb diets. She works closely with Dr. Jason Fung and is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Life in the Fasting Lane, and co-founded The Fasting Method with Dr. Jason Fung. Today, we spoke at great length about her new book, her background in PCOS and misdiagnosis, the myths surrounding intermittent fasting, the role of macros and insulin secretion, the impact of the pandemic and hormones, as well as cortisol and its impact on sleep and stress. We went through quite a few listeners' questions centering around the dawn effect, gout and insomnia. And we also spoke about strategies to help with fasting success. I know you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Well, Megan, it's a pleasure to have you back on. Congratulations on your new book. Thank you, Cynthia. It's been a wild time for me. I'm super pregnant uh, and feeling it every day, but I'm really happy you know, to help continue to spread the message and work on all of the good stuff that you and my colleague, Jason Fong and everyone out there in the fasting space has done. So happy to be a contributor as well. Awesome. Well, you know, I think one of the things that I really respect and value so much about your work is you walk the walk, you know, you've been someone that was diagnosed with PCOS when you were very young. I myself was also diagnosed, although we understood a lot less about it at the time, but it certainly contributed to the fertility challenges that I had. And I know you've experienced that, but let's talk a little bit about TOFI and PCOS and your history, that brief history of Nafl D, because I think that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and being told that you were insulin resistant was a really powerful impetus to find solutions to ensure that you were, you know, on the path to better metabolic health. So wild how traditional Western medicine, especially going back to when I was diagnosed as a teenager and preteen with metabolic conditions, really doesn't understand body composition. You know, I was 12 years old and I was classified as underweight by the BMI scale. I was like 16 point something and everybody, great aunts, grandmothers. Oh, she's so skinny. She's so lucky. How fabulous. My whole healthcare team assumed she must be in phenomenal health. And I was tired all of the time. I was nine and I had done enough research to think, okay, I think I have hypothyroidism at nine years old because I did not feel well. And that was the first time I asked my primary care to check me for hypothyroidism. But everybody just kind of wrote me off because my appearance, how fortunate I was to be so tiny. I was chronically fatigued, even as a kid, I knew it was weird. I couldn't keep up with my peers. We grew up in the suburbs of Toronto. Uh, We were fortunate enough that most of us had stay-at-home moms. So we did music lessons, soccer, field hockey, baseball, swimming. We did all of the things. You had no choice. And I couldn't keep up. I begged my parents all of the time, you know, please like, let me just do one sport a season. I don't want to do these 10 things like all of my friends, I don't have it in me. And no one took any of my 
complaints about my health, seriously. And I'd fracture myself all the time. There was a rainy day and I'd be out in the field and I'd slip and fall and fracture my wrists. I, I was just totally brittle. So in hindsight, you know, I didn't appear to be overweight, but my body composition was very poor. I didn't have strong muscle mass. I clearly didn't have strong bones because I was always in the fractured room. <laughs> Um, I was just a little sack of fat, which is reflective of my diet at the time. You know, it was acceptable to take your kids to McDonald's for a happy meal. That was a healthy thing parents could do. And I had two very busy professional. Well, I had my father was very busy and professional. He's a lawyer downtown. My mom was very sick from her own health journey. So it was just survival. Pizza's fine to have every Monday night, that type of mentality. I think we cooked at home once a week. So at 12, I was diagnosed with fatty liver disease. I'm at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. It's one of the most prestigious institutions in the entire world. People get airlifted there from all over all of the time. And I remember them saying to my mom, she's too skinny. Like this is the disease of an obese child and she's not obese. So she'll just grow out of it. I, I remember that thinking, okay, like this is kind of weird. My uncle died also when I was nine from his third heart attack at 36. So due to some of those situations in my family, I became pretty health conscious and understood early on. And then at 14, I started to get those terrible cramps and weird cycles. I started to cycle when I was 10 years old, which is pretty wild in the first place. And so by the time I was 14, I had, you know, a well-established period, but it started to really change and transform. And it wouldn't be uncommon for me to experience such excruciating pain and weird bleeding and end up in the hospital. And then that was a diagnosis of PCOS. And I remember at the time, our primary care was a good family friend. She said to my parents, like, you guys have money. You know, when she's off in university, try to get her to freeze her eggs you know, we you don't know, she probably won't be able to get pregnant. Surrogacy is going to boom because PCOS is booming. So at least if she has frozen eggs, she might have that option down the road. And also there was just huge confusion because again, I was still classified as underweight at the time. I know I was a string bean. People used to write in my yearbooks, we hate you because you can eat whatever you want. You know, size zero clothes fall off of you. So we really don't pay a lot of attention to people unless we think they physically look like they have some sort of metabolic impairment. But Usually it's the ones that fall under the radar that are at the highest risk for disease and are experiencing real serious you know, metabolic health uh, challenges. And they don't even, I think this is a really terrible just problem we have in our culture is we just celebrate extreme thinness without realizing that that body composition matters. You know, I share in my adult life, I'm barely 5'3". I sometimes, but 5'3 might be a little generous. And in my adult life, you know, I've weighed almost 200 pounds. Eventually, everything caught up with me and I gained a lot of weight. And I weighed 97 pounds. And I tell everyone, once I got to a place of around, I was around 120 pounds, but I had less body fat. I had stronger bones. I had good lean mass. So I had less body fat in the 120s than I ever did in the 90s. And I was more obese at 97 pounds than 120 pounds. And it's just really discouraging how the medical community weighs you. I come from Canada, Toronto, and I will say there really wasn't a huge emphasis on weighing patients outside of their annual checkups. Now I'm a pregnant woman in America and they weigh you like five times a visit. I've never been weighed so much in my life in these last 18 weeks than I have in the last 18 <laughs> years. Um, and it's just wild. You know, uh, you have a little bit of constipation, your weight's up, then you're not constipated, but your weight looks down and everybody's just so panicky about, you know, things not being up a pound or only being up half a pound. And it's just, you can't rely on this. It can't be your only measurement of how well my pregnancy is progressing since we're not doing these ultrasounds. My weight can't tell you everything about the health of this baby. 
So, you know, I remember several years ago, we have a colleague diet doctor, Andreas, and I actually, these memories just popped up on Facebook the other day, which was really nice. But back in 2018, I was there and they asked, you know, what is one thing that you could do? And I said, I wish we could just change the discussion and not focus on weight and really focus on body composition. And people stopped, you know, criticizing people on how much they weighed or giving medical advice based on what that scale says. But rather, do you have strong bones or do you have osteoporosis? Do you have good lean mass that's going to protect you as you age? Or are you wasting away your muscle mass, the sarcopenia? How much body? body fat do you really have? I mean, you can be exceptionally healthy at 160 pounds, or you could be in trouble at 160 pounds. You don't know without understanding that body composition. And it's as critical for people who might look like they have metabolic syndrome is as critical, if not more critical for those who don't look like they might have metabolic syndrome. I think you bring up so many good points. And for anyone that's listening, PCOS is the number one endocrine disorder that we now see in most westernized countries. So it is pervasive. About 25% of individuals with PCOS, Megan obviously fell into this category. I fall into this category are thin. And so the thin phenotype PCOS people, phenotype just means the physicality are literally dropped through the cracks that more often than not, because we are not obese or overweight, people make these assumptions. We can't be insulin resistant. We can't have a degree of inflammation and oxidative stress going on. And I do agree with you wholeheartedly that many of these individuals are at greatest risk because they're not being monitored closely. And the other piece that you kind of touched on so eloquently is there's so much focus on the physicality, the weight on the scale, and yet not really reflecting on what is most important. And certainly at the stage of life I'm in, and most of my listeners are in, you know, they're in this 40 plus year old stage right now where sarcopenia is a real thing, this muscle mm-hmm. loss with aging. And what many of us didn't realize was in our 20s and 30s, that's when we have peak bone and muscle mass. And if we're not working to ensure that we have healthy bones, that we have enough physical lean mass on our bodies, we really get into trouble metabolically north of 35 or 40. And so I think you bring up so many good points. And you know, the other thing that I would say is as a clinician, you know, it's always humbling when I go to a, a doctor's appointment, which I don't do all that often, but when I go and I get weighed. And I remember I had patients that wouldn't look, the nurses would weigh them and they wouldn't look at the numbers. Like there's so much fear and anxiety about what that number represents. And I always say, it's just one piece of a puzzle. It's like, Mm -hmm. just like a blood pressure or a temperature or your respiratory rate. It is not who you are, but yet it is such an important indicator of, are we in a position that we need to do some education? Are we in a position where we need to be talking to this patient about what their risks are? Because I feel like traditional allopathic medicine is really just focused on, it's like, we're waiting for you to get a diagnosis and everything up until then is kind of like, well, you don't look that bad. You're not that sick. (laughs) You're not that heavy. And, And I think we miss opportunities to preventatively ensure people don't go on to develop disease as opposed to, you know, kind of the traditional model is we wait for people to get diabetes. We wait for people to have full blown fulminant cardiovascular disease instead of kind of intervening at a much earlier point in time. What we get to do every day now, you know, my mom was very sick from a young age. Obviously I had this family exposure to metabolic issues at a young age and became very concerned about health and well-being. I had diseases myself that no one really understood. So as early on as I can remember, I remember my first biology lesson and thinking, okay, yeah, I love this stuff. This is what I'm going to do. I want to help people get better. And I just remember I was fortunate. My father traded kids for one summer with his good friend who is a nephrologist. That's how I got into the nephrology field in the first place. That summer I met Jason and So from 15, I got kind of immersed in it. And I was just so depressed come 26 years old. You know, I worked in it every summer, every school year. It then became my school project. At one point, it became sort of my thesis and everything I went to work on. I grew up in in nephrology and it was just heartbreaking. I'm a 
came to the conclusion, okay, we just watch people die and we try to give them prescriptions to lessen their symptoms. And that's literally all we do. I was actually sort of taking a year off from figuring out my life. I was still working in nephrology because I had bills I had to pay, but trying to figure out, you know, am I going to go to law school? Like maybe I'll just follow in the family footsteps here because that way you're not as emotionally attached to people if you're doing corporate litigation. There's a line there, but I said, I can't just go on and, and just manage people's demise. It's too heartbreaking. And that's not what I thought medicine was. And now I get to go to work every day. You get to go to work every day. And all we do is hear about people getting better, or at least being able to improve the quality of their life substantially. And, you know, for me, I have a large focus on diabetes. That's how Jason and I got started. And almost every day, there's someone who's been on insulin for 20 or 30 years, they're off of it and they're having normal glucose responses. They would pass an oral glucose tolerance test. And when they do the equivalent with an insulin response test, they have a normal insulin response to these foods as well. It's just mind blowing that we get to help get people their lives back. And I think it, social media has so many pros and cons, but one of the pros is the voice uh, of people who have really focused on disease prevention and the root cause of disease, being able to be out there sharing their story. And now other people are learning, okay, maybe type two diabetes isn't something like a chronic progressive disease that I have to live with, or maybe I don't have to live with the symptoms of PCOS or this fatty liver disease that they tell me I can't get rid of. I can actually reverse that in several months with lifestyle changes, so it's really rewarding that we get to do this every day. Yeah. What an incredible story for listeners that may not realize that your work as a teen was really working in nephrology. That's how you met Jason. And then this very serendipitous friendship, collegial environment ensued. And so thank you for all the contributions that you both have made. It certainly has influenced the work that I have done. And so let's pivot and talk about one of those strategies that I know has been so effective for your patients. And, you know, there's growing awareness around intermittent fasting. And almost every time I get interviewed, people are like, they want to talk about the myths around intermittent fasting. And so I thought it might be helpful because there's still a lot of misinformation about it. Jason has a, a quote in the book that I wanted to share because I loved it. Snacking is healthy. If we were meant to graze, we would be cows. <laughs> and so really helping people understand that snacking is problematic in and of itself. And this constant influx of food, how this is eroding our metabolic health and how it's contributing to all these metabolic diseases that are increasing at alarming rates, including PCOS, including diabetes, including hypertension, et cetera. So some of the common myths about intermittent fasting, what are the ones that you hear most frequently from your patients? Yeah. So the myths, extreme calorie restriction. Another one is the muscle loss that we have. So the starvation essentially, and yeah, one of the most overnourished, we're also one of the most malnourished, but overnourished populations on the planet. So those big misconceptions and this, that is not safe or effective for women. And there's all these weird stigmas at various age points throughout the woman's life in years of fertility, it will harm fertility. Well, you know, here I am about to turn 39 years old, pregnant. I did have to bank embryos because I don't have that many eggs left due to my PCOS history, but I don't really have tremendous infertility issues. I just want to make sure that when I'm 41, I want to have a second kid. I've got viable eggs or embryos available to have that child. So there's the, the fertility aspect. It's going to ruin your chance or there's just no hope for postmenopausal women. And I do feel bad. This is one thing too. And I do take everyone's feedback very seriously and really try to think about it. You know, even in my book, there is a lot of feedbacks come. There's nothing really specific about postmenopausal when a woman, you know, we talk about estrogen dominance and, you know, how that plays a role. And of course that affects postmenopausal women too, but postmenopausal women can really fast like men. There's very few restrictions on things. And of course you want to 
I will be happy to take some lovely bioidenticals as I get older. Give me a little bit of progesterone. Let me sleep and <laughs> enjoy life. So, you know, I'm very open to that, but I also have the knowledge base. That's something that's missing. We talk a bit about that in the book too, but we have so much great success with this postmenopausal population. And most of the people I work with do have some degree of diabetes. That's why they come to us in the first place. But as we treat the diabetes, the weight loss does come. So every different stage, you know, a perimenopausal, your hormones are too weird. You can't do anything. You must continue to snack and graze like the cow. That's not the case either. There's a lot that you can do during these hormonal shifts. So very weird insights across the female, adult female age spectrum. Yeah. And it's interesting because almost every day I get tagged in something. Oftentimes people want me to engage or argue with someone else. And and that's just not, I don't think that's particularly effective. There are people who believe what they believe and they're not interested in entertaining different opinions. And I would agree with you that a young under 35 lean athletic woman is very different than a young diabetic woman or a woman with PCOS. And can they fast? Absolutely. And especially if they're not metabolically healthy for the same reason why for me, you know, intermittent fasting allowed me to feel like I got my life back because I was on that slippery slope of perimenopause and listeners, I, I talk really openly about this. I'd never been weight loss resistant. And all of a sudden I was, and I kept saying all the information I used to tell my patients isn't effective. What am I doing wrong? And so nearly every woman I speak to, they hear from their healthcare providers. Oh, you're just whatever, insert whatever age they are. Oh, you're 45. Oh, you're 50. You're never going to be as thin as you were at 30. You know, it's probably your thyroid. Oh, your thyroid's fine. No, it really isn't. <laughs> or you have to just accept that you're exhausted. You don't sleep. You know, not to mention the fact that a lot of women are still told by their providers that hormone bioidentical hormone replacement therapy is not a good idea. I've had women say to me, I want to navigate menopause naturally. And when I explain that we have progesterone and estrogen and testosterone receptors on nearly every part of our bodies, you understand the net impact of those decisions. And so I would say make a fully informed decision. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. The indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some circumstances, up to 100 times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? I want to introduce you to a product by Air Doctor that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so that your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants such as allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses that have the potential to go on and make us sick. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day, breathe-easy, money-back guarantee so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorbro.com and use code CYNTHIA. You'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 in value. Look at the special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R. PRO.com and use promo code Cynthia. I absolutely love my air filters. They're an integral component to ensuring that the air that my family breathes in our home is as safe as possible. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. 
It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high-quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full-spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. If you're working with Megan and Jason, they're going to talk to you so that you understand you have options. And I would agree with you that menopausal women have a much easier time because they're not dealing with fluctuations between estradiol and progesterone throughout the month. They're not dealing with a menstrual cycle anymore. And sometimes I feel like it's easiest to speak to that community because in many ways, most clinicians don't get enough education around these middle-aged women. And so many women are just told, oh, it's just the way things are. This is the age that you are. So I can imagine much like it is for me, middle-aged women are so happy when they start having some degree of fluctuation and body composition and changes in their insulin sensitivity and better sleep and all these things that can be beneficial in in terms of looking at their trajectory throughout middle age and beyond. There's so much hope for women. I don't know when the tides change. I was born in 84 and I just remember all of this praise for my quote, thinness or skinniness growing up. And I felt terrible for some of my cousins because I would be prized over certain family members because of my petite physical experience. I ended up being the most unhealthy of all of them combined at a certain point. Yeah, there's just celebration for for thinness and, and whatnot. And as you know, we enter our 20s, then the messages from older females, oh, enjoy it now while it lasts. You're going to turn 30. You're going to start gaining a couple pounds every year. Wait till you turn 40. Doomsday, doomsday, doomsday. Like this it was just preached at me by not just family members, my parents' friends, other family friends, teachers at school, other parents' friends. Like it just went on. Like you're a woman and you're totally doomed. You know, once you hit 30, it's just downhill and it doesn't have to be. I mean, we see women every day that are living better lives at 60 or 65 than they ever did in their 20s. They're so much healthier. They're doing the most wonderful and wild adventures. And throughout the whole process, they might have had to come off of, you know, a bunch of blood pressure medications, diabetes medications and and whatnot. But women, we can really just enjoy life as we get older. And, uh, you know, the best years are still yet to come. I'm so much more healthy, you know, at 38 than I was 28, which is really cool. I had this whole issue with mold in between that I thought was going to kill me, but I'm coming out on the other side of that now. Pregnancy might kill me also. Uh, (laughs) I'm not convinced, but you know, I'm still a lot healthier. So that makes me really excited for what 48, 58, 68 can bring. So I look forward to the future now rather than being terrified about it. But there's this whole, like the whole culture is that you're just going to lose it and you're going to spend your life on medications, obese at doctor's offices as you get older for women. Well, and it's interesting. Uh, my team and I created some content around, you know, weight gain doesn't have to be a normal function of aging. And it was, of people were very supportive. And then a couple people got triggered to a point that my team was like, how do you want to handle these comments? And I said, I think what we have to realize is that there are people who are not receptive to that message. They want to 
believe fervently the best years are not yet to come. You know, they want to find a reframe that's not a positive reframe. They want to reflect on the negativity. And I always say there's challenges at every stage of life, but I definitely believe that I am healthier, happier, more physically active now than I've ever been. And so one of the questions that came in, Megan, was help us understand the concept of SECO, so calories in, calories out, versus the paradigm that I know we both kind of fall into that talks about this carb insulin model and how calories is just one component of how people can gain weight. It is not the only thing that people need to be cognizant or aware of. It's so funny. Um, We invest so much time and energy and thought into this whole calories in, calories out. We need to move more and consume less. It's a simple math equation. There's a thousand plus dietary programs out there that are all based on this model. But yet obesity is at unprecedented rates and is just continuing to skyrocket. So we're trying, you know, if I had a quarter for every client, woman, men who come came to us and said, Hey, you know, we spent over a hundred grand so far on all these dietary programs, or we started when we were nine years old and we only lose the weight for a little bit. And then we regain it all back and we can't sustain it. We don't feel well. We develop all of these health issues and then they buy another dietary program. You know, some are based on points. Some are based on shakes. Some are like meal plans, whatever they are. They're all based on the model of calories in versus calories out, they just have different packaging. It's like going to Costco. There's Costco brand toilet paper. Then there's a toilet paper with the cats and the toilet paper with the bears. They're all toilet paper. They're just in different packaging and packaging and what price point you know, works for you. But at the end of the day, they're all going to serve as toilet paper. So we do all of these diets, that beach diet, that point diet, and we expect to have different outcomes, but we end up having the same outcomes over and over again. And, you know, I get into this debate a lot in my personal life over the years, but it's funny, my personal People are more likely to come at me about calories aggressively. But, you know, if you have 150 calories from a can of soda versus 150 calories from a handful of olives, or if you've got 200 calories from three cookies or 200 calories from a piece of salmon, there's a very big difference. You know, diabetics know people who have been stuck in this weight loss circle know having that 150 calories of soda or 200 calories from cookies is not going to aid in their efforts. But when we look at the almonds or when we look at the salmon, we know that that's going to not raise our blood sugar levels. It's not going to contribute to weight gain. It's going to aid in weight loss. So the calories are the same. Why do we have such different expectations? When we had our clinic in Toronto, Patients were forced to be there. No one saw us electively. It's all covered by insurance. Their doctors referred them. They showed up. There's this nice doctor, this nice guy who says, I want you to not eat 50% of the time. And now I want you to go see this young, you know, blondish redhead person who looks to be in perfect health. And she's going to tell you how to do it. It's ridiculous to actually think about. So, you know, I had to share my story with them to get them to understand there's light at the end of the tunnel, but I had to get them to shift their paradigms. And we used to hold these in-person, sounds so archaic now, in-person seven-hour like boot camp class to get everybody to the same base level of education. We did it every Friday. And the first thing I asked everybody when they sat down, they're all diabetics. And I say, you know, if you're trying to control your blood sugar levels, or if you're trying to lose weight after a holiday, what are five foods that you consider to be real foods, not fast food or junk food that you would cut out of your diet to have better blood sugar levels and to lose weight. And I give them a few minutes without fail every single time in those few years that we did this every Friday, rice, pasta, corn, potatoes, bread. Now we know some of those foods are are very processed, but most people look at things like pasta and bread and just white rice and think that they're, they're healthy, natural foods that haven't been processed. So you hear these foods and I'd say back to them, okay, well, these are low calorie, low fat foods. 
So why are you trying to avoid the low calorie, low fat foods in order to lose weight? And then you start to see the hamster wheels turning in the room. Okay, this doesn't make sense. She is right. These are low fat, low calorie foods. But if I eat lots of them, I gain weight. Or if I eat any of it, I see my blood sugar levels worsen. So it's really about our hormonal responses to the components of those foods. If we look at our foods across all cultures, I had the extreme privilege of being raised in Toronto, which is the most diversity in the entire world. And as we've got this baby coming, there's a lot of discussion about moving back so they can have that similar experience. But all of our foods are made from the same building blocks, you know, at the most simple form, we have macronutrients, the biggest building blocks, fat, protein, and carbohydrates. And they all have different hormonal responses when consumed by the body. And it's these hormones that largely can drive weight gain and the development of metabolic illness like type 2 diabetes or prevent it. So when we consume natural dietary fats, things like the salmon and the avocados or the coconut oil, the grass fed beef, you know, what we're really giving our body is the base of all the hormones that we make, the base of the healthy cholesterols. We give our body the potential to absorb some really good nutrients and vitamins. And we also are producing a fuel source, but a fuel source that can act independently of insulin. When we eat carbohydrates, there's there's different categories for carbohydrates. You know, they used to be complex and simple and then processed and unprocessed carbohydrates. They are primarily a fuel source for the body. They do serve some other functions, but they're primarily a fuel source for the body. So they do require assistance though from insulin in order to be utilized as a fuel source. And they they also require insulin to help store it so it can be retrieved as a fuel source later on if required, but we eat all of the time. Um, so you have this macronutrient that's largely dependent upon insulin. So we've got these two primary fuel macronutrients that have these very different hormonal responses with insulin. And insulin is primarily a fat trapping hormone and a hormone that when it's produced in too high levels in the body, it becomes toxic and that it can contribute to the development of insulin resistance where our cells actually experience resistance to our own insulin from the overexposure of it. Whether it's, you know, you're just eating a lot of processed and refined carbs that produce a ton of insulin, or you're eating all of the time and you're just constantly exposing yourselves to yourselves to insulin. So our, our bodies respond hormonally very different to these macronutrients. So when we tend to eat a diet that prior prioritizes things like avocado, salmon, grass-fed beef, duck eggs, olive oil. You know, we don't produce in response a lot of this fat-driving, fat-trapping hormone. And so really looking at the hormonal response is so critically important. Another big thing too is, you know, isn't fasting just an extreme form of calorie restriction? And one thing you know we like to talk to our community about is if your household budget was reduced by 30%, you could figure it out. You might have to sell a car or downsize. You might cancel that Netflix subscription and get a Hulu subscription. I don't know what's cheaper. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just you might buy food that's on sale versus just buying whatever you want at the grocery store. Um, when your household income's first slashed by 30%, you're gonna overspend. But you know, a few months down the road, you're gonna have figured it out. So you know how to accommodate to the new dietary or the new household budget. So if you think of calories sort of as this dietary budget, in a sense, if you reduce your caloric intake, say by 30% in the hopes of losing weight, your metabolism is going to keep your body running like normal for the first little while and you'll burn, you'll lose some fat, but then it figures it out. It says, okay, I only have $1,200 a day instead of, you know, $2,000 a day to budget on. So I'm going to slow down cognitive function, respiratory function, reproductive function. And then what happens is people start to feel like they're running slow and on empty and not full robust capacity. So they're not feeling great and they stop losing weight. 
when you're doing something like fasting, like what we work on with our communities is you're not really giving them anything, right? 35 calories from a cup of coffee or a cup of green tea here and there. The body can't function on that. So we actually have this really cool nervous system response. We engage our sympathetic nervous system and we produce these cool counter regulatory hormones. And those help us liberate our body fat, burn it and use it as fuel. So when we look at all of the, we've been really fortunate in our fasting space to have a lot of great randomized control trials come out comparing true alternate daily fasts to traditional calorie restriction diets. And we see it superior fasting superior across the board, more fat loss, more trunk fat loss, better retention of lean mass to help comfort the minds of those who are concerned about that. But we also see this great maintenance of resting metabolic rate in the fasting group, where we see a clinically significant reduction in every single RCT of the calorie restriction groups. So this nervous system response uh, is a big differentiator, you know, that keeps our body accessing all these fat stores, accessing all that extra fuel that's been stored for use later on. Diabetics will say, Hey, Megan, I don't get it. You know, my blood sugars are still 180 while I'm fasting. Well, your body is just going into those stores. So, you know, that extra cake that you had on your 40th birthday, or that extra donut that you had the day that, you know, that truck had flipped over on the expressway and you were late for work, like all of this stuff, it's there. We've never burned it. And we're liberating it now. I think it's really helpful for people to understand that complex interrelationship because, you know, there are still the naysayers out there that want to just count calories. And I explain to them all the time that it's so much more nuanced and you did a really beautiful job. I would love to touch on the role of, or the net impact of sleep and stress on our glucose and as well as our insulin levels, because I think especially coming out of this, you know, three-year social experiment slash pandemic. (laughs) I think a lot of people are now probably starting to understand that, you know, not getting enough sleep, not managing your stress is not going to allow you to navigate having optimized or optimal metabolic health long-term. I think that prior to COVID-2, busyness was very rewarded and celebrated. And what we have is a generation of younger people seeing generations of older people just being really sick. I don't have to convince any of my younger cousins that they shouldn't drink soda or juice. They understand what happens to that when when you do consume those things. My mom drinks orange juice. She needs no diabetic medication. It can't be good for you. So, you know, this is, I think, started to get highlighted before COVID that, hey, maybe busyness isn't something to celebrate, you know, ending up, you know, in your retirement years, going from doctor to doctor and taking 18 medications a day. That's not how we should function. And it's so, I'm sure in the population you work with and our population too, these people are killing themselves, you know, trying to do everything they can to, in my group, really reverse their type two diabetes and get the perks of that, like fat loss down the road. You know, they're overhauling their diets. They're, um, you know, doing, I do pretty intensive fasting with the diabetic patients, not forever for about six months, but they're doing a lot. And there's, you know, there's sacrifices that do come with that therapeutic choice, but they're not sleeping. You know, they're working all hours of the day. Even when they do eat, they're working through those meals. And all of the stuff is really counterproductive towards our health goals and our longevity. And I do think, yeah, like you said, COVID was a a big wake up for a lot of people because that was just an extreme amount of stress in a very short period of time. And I see family members and they look like they age 20 years and three years. Um, It's been wild. So cortisol is our primary stress hormone. And it's so important to understand that dosage really makes a poison with so many things. You know, we talk about, and I've talked a lot already in this episode about, you know, toxic levels of insulin being problematic. Well, we know if there's no insulin, that's also problematic. You know, an individual has type one diabetes and requires medical intervention for that for the rest of their life. And there's risks associated with it. 
So cortisol is a, you know, a stress hormone and a little bit of stress on the body is a very good thing. It helps us grow and thrive and become resilient. You know, that's what fasting and therapeutic fasting are. They're, you know, positive stressors in most situations. There's some situations where it's not ideal or optimal, might be too much stress. And we call this whole concept of, you know, finding the right amount of stress or hormesis, you know. So when someone asks me, hey, Megan, where should I start off with fasting? Do I start off with 14 hours or should I jump into 14 days? You know, it's kind of like going to the gym, you know, and you've never been to the gym before. You know, do you pick up that two pound dumbbell or do you pick up that 50 pound dumbbell to do bicep curls? If you pick up that 50 pound dumbbell, you're probably going to hurt yourself and end up in PT or seeing a sports chiro for the next six months. You're going to set yourself way back. Two pounds might not stress your muscles out enough. So we know typically when we go into the gym, we have to find the right amount of stress. So it's as about finding the right amount of stress in life. So we don't want no cortisol being produced. That's a very bad thing. My mother actually doesn't have either adrenal gland, they were surgically removed, our adrenal Mm -hmm. glands produce cortisol. So now she's on all this fun medication for the rest of her life and ends up in the ICU for two months every two years. It's really great. You know, no one wants to live like that. So we don't want to have the ability not to have any cortisol or or produce it on our on its own. But we also don't want to have too much of it either. And there's a hormonal cascade of things. Everything in the body is a song and dance. I even had a very um, physiology 101 reminder the other day that, oh, progesterone increases calcitriol levels. I I don't even like that had those things so compartmentalized in my brain after all of these years, but everything really interacts with one another in the body. So when our cortisol levels go too high, we have an insulin response. We see our glucose levels become elevated. We activate fat storing and that you can't be in both fat storing and fat burning at the same time. So if you've had this nervous system response, the stress response that activates fat storing, you're not fat burning. And so you're really driving up your risk factors for disease. And so most people look at stress and they think financial stress, marital stress, stress from aging parents, work stress, but stress comes in a variety of different forms too, like chronic busyness, not taking downtime, not getting proper sleep. Sleep is the foundation of of just everything. So if you don't have sleep, your body's going to be chronically stressed. You could have the most rainbow butterfly Buddhist Zen life, but if you're not sleeping, your body is going to be under physiological stress. I'm pregnant and we spent a lot of time, effort and money and emotions into getting pregnant. It's stressful though. I'm so grateful. I've never been so grateful to be so sick in my life, but it's stressful. It has impacts. Weddings. I love my husband. Our wedding was unbelievably stressful, planning it from Toronto when it was in the United States and not seeing the venue until the day before the ceremony. There's, you know, it was, and it was stressful having our families come together for the first time the day before our wedding. So, you know, all of these great things too in life do come with some associated stress and we just let it consume ourselves nowadays rather than focusing on getting a rest, taking care of it, you know, stepping outside, taking some fresh air, doing some deep breathing. We've got to take care of ourselves because stress on its own, you could have the most perfect diet and the most perfect fasting plan and you can't out eat or out fast a stressful lifestyle. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy provide mental clarity and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix 
then needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That is so true. And I I think for a lot of people, perhaps the last three years has forced them to kind of reappraise where they are in their lives, what they're doing, how they choose to interact with others. I am a big fervent believer of boundaries, you know, it, whether that's personally or professionally, I think that's very important. I love that you're talking about that connection to nature saying no, doing less to be busy. It's interesting. I just watched the, I'm embarrassed to say that I binged a, a documentary on Arnold Schwarzenegger, but essentially he admits to the fact that he's kept himself so busy that he never had to deal with the death of two loved ones. And, you know, he was very transparent about how, you know, was his work ethic. He's Austrian and, you know, they're supposed to be busy and not complain and just keep plodding along. And, you know, he even mentions how destructive that can be long-term. Now, in terms of people, if they're listening to our conversation, they're interested in intermittent fasting, what are some of the kind of core concepts? Obviously, if you're diabetic, a brittle diabetic, you've got significant health problems, you want to touch base with your healthcare professional. But when we're talking about general overviews of strategies for people to kind of slowly integrate fasting into their lifestyle, what are some of your common best tips for that? Yeah, be mindful of how many times a day you're causing your body to produce insulin in response to food. I mean, you don't have to do any crazy fasting. And this is where the not grazing, you know, like a cow, Jason's (laughs) comes in. Just don't snack. I always joke with people, you want to go back to those leave it to beaver days. I actually had a community member and she came across an old episode on some TV station. And she said, you're just, you're right. The beeves, he got so much trouble for sneaking an apple before dinner because that meant he hadn't saved his appetite for his healthy, proper meal. And just the fact that they looked at an apple, like he had ate an entire box of cookies, you know, for a very long time, we ate square meals in modern day human history, and and we didn't eat in between. So just being conscious, even if it's just three meals a day, you know, if you want to have those almonds, have them at lunch, have them at dinner. Even if you did want to have some berries, okay, have them at lunch, have them at dinner, just keep being mindful of how many times a day you are asking your body to produce insulin. And I think if we did that, 
you know, if you know, if a largely first world countries that have the privilege of this 24 seven access to abundance of food, a very cheap processed and refined food. If we just cut out snacking, I think we'd see metabolic illness rates reduced by about 50% easily and a huge drop in uh, obesity levels. So that's the best place to get started. It's not always about eating less. It's about eating less often. Of course, what you eat is really important as well, but eating less often is a really good place to get started. Yeah. I think that's certainly really helpful. Now we had specific questions that came in around things like, what if I start fasting and my sleep quality erodes? What are some of the things that you like to suggest or recommend to your patients? Because Obviously, the bulk of my listeners are north of 40 and sleep becomes problematic because of this fluctuations in progesterone, amongst Mm -hmm. other things. But this was a common concern that people were curious to know, you know, what are your workarounds? Yeah, usually if someone comes into, say, a consultation and their sleep is already non-existent, I will have the conversation with them about getting their sex hormones looked at, investigating progesterone or even like Vitex or, or something that they can do if they're more comfortable going that route just to help because fasting is just going to have the, well, the most common side effect we see of the longer fast that we do is sleep disturbances. They're usually temporary. They last for a couple of weeks. So I wouldn't encourage anyone to start it during a really crazy time. Yeah, I've had this book launch. Now would be the time if I was new to fasting to start fasting, for example, when things are a little bit more normal in your life, in your routine, you're not going to be traveling or, or working crazy hours. That's a good time to start your routine. At the most minimal invasive recommendation is magnesium uh, supplementation, typically for improvement with sleep and just overall relaxation of the nervous system. We recommend magnesium magnesium glycinate or visglycinate uh, are the same thing, but the different bottles say different things. We'll encourage people to take it, you know, sort of early evening. That way it's got a chance to sort of let the body relax before going to bed. I find one of the things is people take it, go to bed right away, then they've drank water, they have to wake up to go to the bathroom. There's all different types of problems with that, or it takes a couple of hours to really relax them when they want to be sleeping. So magnesium supplementation, um, individuals with insulin related issues, insulin really causes our body to burn through an enormous amount of magnesium. So a lot of the data shows that you know, individuals with insulin resistance actually need a ton of magnesium every day. So the daily RDA, you know, is around 400. Um, but the data shows that a lot of insulin resistant people actually need around you know, 2000, 2400, which is way different than the RDA. Now, not everyone can tolerate that. There are gastrointestinal effects of taking two too much magnesium, but even taking the daily RDA, you know, in the early evening can help. Another thing that I found to be really effective, and we have all kinds of people that want to do five day fast, 10 day fast. So, you know, if there's no reason why we can't support them, um, we will support them. And during those times, I'll recommend Epsom salt baths or Epsom salt foot soaks if they don't have a tub or they're not comfortable getting into a tub. The Epsom salts is just pure magnesium sulfate and absorbs transdermally through the skin. There's now magnesium oils and gels that you can purchase nowadays as well that do something similar. So magnesium can be really relaxing on the body. In some cases too, we'll encourage people to get their melatonin levels checked. A lot of women can do that through the Dutch urinalysis test. Melatonin is an interesting thing. As we get older, our systems definitely be, can have the potential to become depleted in it. Um, so that's something we, we want to see naturally how much we can optimize that first, you know, limiting screen time. If you're going to read and need a light, getting a little red light, you know, just to help who we really want to generate this melatonin production as naturally as possible in the evening if it's deficient. 
sometimes we just can't produce adequate enough. And then that leads to conversations about supplementation. We tend to supplement pretty high here in North America compared to what is even considered to be legal in other parts of the world. So it's not an abundance of supplementation. You know, half a milligram or a milligram can often do the trick with good bedtime etiquette. But it's important to know because a lot of the times too, we can maybe feel fatigued from having too much melatonin. And too much melatonin is another one of those hormones that if it's not in the right amount has negative consequences, one of them being insulin resistance and all of the fun that comes along with that. We want to avoid all of that stuff. So getting your levels checked, I'm a big proponent of targeted supplementation. I take a handful of things myself. I either know I'm nutritionally going to be deficient in because I don't eat enough of it, or um, I do the testing and just make sure that I'm getting adequate nutrient levels across the board. Melatonin is one of those that you want to do. You just don't want to take blindly and you certainly don't want to take a lot of the higher doses that you see at, at the store these days. No, I think it's certainly worthy to kind of first start with emphasizing the sleep hygiene piece before we start, you know, over supplementation. Just two more things to dump on, to, to jump on Dawn effect. So a lot of the listeners are savvy with what this represents. I know you mentioned in the book that it's sometimes the hardest thing to work on, especially for those who are already insulin resistant or diabetic, but for people that are looking at continuous glucose monitors or glucometers, trying to figure out why that Dawn effect is still magnified, even though they're doing fasting as a regimen. Any tips? Yeah, you've got to be patient with it. I mean, my colleague, Jason Fung says this is the last thing that gets better. Like you will have a name A1C that's close to optimal and you still might be combating blood sugar levels that are slightly elevated in the morning time. You know, these hormones produced in the morning time that help us get ready to wake up and conquer the day. And uh, they do cause our liver to spill out any excess glucose that might be in there. So the body's just purging and dumping. There's also a stress response that happens in the morning that triggers this as well. So focusing on those stress strategies, in addition to all of the great diet and nutritional strategies, you know, getting your cortisol in the good and healthy range and sort of a normal circadian rhythm curve, getting good sleep, all of that can really help expedite the recovery of those morning blood glucose levels. Yeah. The most important thing is to be patient. I think we want instant gratification as a society (laughs) and that's not entirely realistic. Last question is around gout. There were a lot of questions about husbands who have gout or women that have experienced gout. Why do we need to be careful if we are fasting and we have a history of gout? And for the listeners that don't know, gout is a metabolic issue. It is not benign. It's not just about eating too much cured meat or cheese. It is a sign of high uric acid levels, which are a reflection of metabolic health. Yeah. It's so funny to have gotten into this because gout is something that I've combated with patients. Again, since I was 15 years old, I was creating a medication database. And the crazy thing, you know, for renal patients or kidney disease patients is that they end up having gout related issues because their kidneys are failing and unable to excrete the uric acid. So it builds up, but then the medications that are prescribed for gout worsen the kidney function. So even this is, I'll say was probably the only holistic thing that we ever looked at through a lens and looked at prior to, you know, Jason and I going off into more of this fasting functional nutrition space was, are there different ways to mitigate that? So a lot of people come to programs or communities like ours, and they're terrified because a lot of the food we recommend is typically food that they don't suggest you should have if you have gout. It's like, no, you have high gout because you have high insulin levels and metabolic syndrome. And as we work on that, we will improve it over time. So when someone is new to fasting with a history of gout, it can get flared up. When we first start fasting and our insulin levels are high, they do drop very quickly. This causes water loss and electrolyte loss. This can lead to the buildup of uric acid and gout symptoms, which are I've never experienced, but 
but I hear are quite excruciating, so I never want to experience. So we do tend to start off someone with a history of gout, just a little bit slower. So we don't really see their insulin levels tank. We don't see issues with dehydration. We do spend more time talking to them about the importance of water and salt and how it relates to them. There's some additional supplementation that we recommend, even something as benign as citrus juice. So that can come in the form of lemon or lime water. Both are very, lemon and lime juice are very um, effective solvents for uric acid. So we would use this in, in kidney patients, even you know, going back like 30 years ago now, lemon, lime juice. So uh, it really helps to, to dilute the blood of the uric acid. Cherry fruit extract or cherry tart extract, depending on what country you're in, I've learned to call them different things. That's also helpful. So in cases of more extreme, sometimes we'll get diabetic who's like on three or four hundred units of insulin. We're eager to fast them more aggressively. You know, we don't have, you know, several weeks or months to build them up to doing some longer fasts. So, you know, we'll say we'll have a few tablespoons of lime juice or lemon juice in your water, or try taking the, you know, cherry tartar, cherry fruit extract. Uh, and this usually helps mitigate the symptoms. Actually, we had those one clinic patient, we never really did many fasts beyond 14 days, but sometimes people had different desires. So Lent was a big one for religious reasons. Um, a lot of our patients wanted to do longer fasts. We had one lady with a severe history of gout, not always the best diet. She went through a lot of life changes and was struggling with finding comfort in food. So for a spiritual reason, she wanted to do a longer fast. So we utilize some of these tools, really focus on hydration, try to bring her insulin levels down as much as possible through nutrition before um, starting the longer fast. And she went for actually quite a long time without having any issues. I checked her uric acid levels twice a week and we had no issues, but that will get better over time. You know, does it go crazy restricting um, beef and seafood like that doesn't contribute to it at all. Well, it's certainly reassuring and lots of little tips that I was not aware of. Megan, thank you so much for your time today. Please let listeners know how to connect with you to purchase your new book, how to connect with you on social media, et cetera. Thank you. So all information about us can be found on our website, thefastingmethod.com. The links to the books are there, Canada, the United States, Australia, the UK, and more places as it becomes available. Uh, you'll be able to find it there, but all of our social media links as well. You can find us at thefastingmethod.com everywhere or at Megan J. Ramos as well. Oh, thank you again. It's been a pleasure as always. Thanks, Cynthia. I really appreciate our discussions. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.